Good evening once again. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35. As you're turning there, a central theme that will occupy our hearts and minds for the next few moments is a question about our sin, as well as the bold reminder that Jesus died for addicts. Hear now the word of the living God, Proverbs chapter 23, beginning in verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like the one who, dies, who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Living God, now we pray that in this brief time, you would encourage our hearts through your word unfolded. May we see not only our challenges and struggles with sin, but may we see together a glorious Savior whose grace is sufficient. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, tonight I want to speak to you about our addictions and I want to speak to you, as hopefully as always is the case, about the Savior who died for those very sins. It's interesting, if you consider the word addiction, it is one of the words that has changed over time. It's a word that comes from a Latin word. We don't often talk about the roots of our word, but I point this out because in the 1500s, the word addict coming from Latin into English, meant someone who was bound or devoted to someone, or someone who was enslaved by law or by debt. Of course, over time, that word has come to mean more than just those things. Today, we often think of that word meaning, as one dictionary describes it, strongly inclined towards something. Here's what Webster's Dictionary defines the word addiction as. Exhibiting a compulsive, chronic, physiological, or psychological need for a habit-forming substance, behavior, or activity. Now, of course, you can see quite a bit of addition to that definition as compared to the 1500s. Bound or devoted to someone or perhaps 
something. One of the challenges with the word addiction, and I wrestled with whether to use it or not, is because addiction now has come to mean something that is considered simply a physiological disease. If someone has an addiction, they have an illness. They don't have a sin problem. The challenge with that definition, if left by itself, doesn't explain the biblical data that we see in passages like Proverbs 23. If you recall, Proverbs is often a book where there are simple one-verse statements of wisdom, but every once in a while there is a section, a description, several verses brought together with a common theme, and that's what we have here. Why do I use the word addiction? Because, brothers and sisters, what we see described in Proverbs 23, verses 29 to 35, very much could be a picture of addiction. In this instance, yes, to alcohol or to wine. But I want to broaden out our discussion this evening and give you this to consider. What if the word addiction, through the lenses of the pages of Scripture, could be defined this way? The repeated sinful use of created things to the detriment of our souls, minds, and or bodies. What that does is it gives us the reminder that addiction, among other things, impacts our souls. It involves the sinful use of created things, but it does indeed bring harm to our minds, our souls, or our bodies. I want to speak briefly tonight, brothers and sisters, about our addictions. Walk with me through this section of Proverbs. One question perhaps on your mind, which I will just lay out already, knowing that some of you may have it. You may be thinking, well, I'm not an addict. Let's walk through the pages of Scripture and consider how we might think about this tonight. The first thing that we see in this set of verses is the life of addiction. And again, by addiction, I mean the repeated sinful use of created things to the detriment of our souls, minds, and or bodies. That's how I'm defining this word. And just to put you at ease, I'm not in any way denying that there are not certain created things that make it harder than others for our bodies to overcome such an addiction. But let's look firstly at the life of addiction, verses 29 and 30. Notice how this section opens. It's a riddle, a series of questions. You know what a riddle is, boys and girls. Something is described, and you're to come up with the answer. Here's the riddle. Who has woe in their life? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Who is it, the wisdom writer writes, that has these things? And the answer is given in the very next verse, verse 30. Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. The answer to the riddle of 29 is verse 30. Those who are devoted to the use of a created thing, namely wine. Notice the words that the wisdom writer uses. This is not someone who simply uses wine enjoys wine, this is someone who, quote, lingers long at the wine. Notice the very next phrase, they go in search of mixed wine. 
these two phrases signify that a person is not simply using God's good gifts, but abusing God's good gifts. This is not, brothers and sisters, a prohibition of alcohol. I don't think I have to describe that to you in this congregation, but let it be said. The wisdom here is not, do not touch alcohol. The wisdom is, do not linger long after it. Do not spend your life going in search of fine varieties of it. You remember that when the qualifications for elders and deacons are given in 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, and then for deacons in verse 8, one of the statements that is mentioned is that this individual, this man, be, quote, not given to much wine. He's the opposite of the answer to the riddle here in Proverbs 23. We're speaking of the life of addiction for a moment. Notice the kind of life that the sinful, repeated use of created things to the detriment of our souls, minds, and bodies brings about. Verse 29 gives us that life. It's a life full of woe. It's a life full of sorrow, contentions or fights, complaints, wounds. It's not hard if you've known someone who has spent their life or part of their life addicted to alcohol to see even pictures in your mind as this riddle is given. Woe, sorrow, contentions, wounds without cause. That's how the wisdom writer describes the life of one who is in the midst of addiction. But the second thing that we see tonight is the temptation to addiction. The temptation. We see the riddle in verse 29, the answer in verse 30, but look at verse 31. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. Now, the writer of, he, of the Proverbs often uses very vivid imagery to try to bring a point across. You may say, well, the text says do not look on the wine when it is red, if it's red wine, it's going to always be red. What is meant there? But that word look, perhaps if you have the King James Version, will be translated look earnestly. It's not that we're not to ever let our eyes cross wine, but rather our gaze, our desire, our motivations are not to be driven by wine. The Baptist preacher and commentator John Gill commenting on this helps us because look at the next phrase. He says, Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. Listen to what Gill says. He says, Which was the only wine used in the land of Canaan, or however, the most esteemed of, and that most of which had the best color when it had good, bright red color or sparkled and looked bright and beautiful, so the word signifies, and then it should not be looked upon. Not that it is unlawful to look upon the color of wine and thereby judge of its goodness, but it should not be looked upon with a greedy eye, so as vehemently to desire it, which will lead to an intemperate use of it. End quote. You see what Gill is after. It's not, boys and girls, that looking at a glass of wine, it's sinful. But it's when someone's heart starts to be driven 
by any created thing, in this case wine, they begin to desire it in sinful ways. Go to it as if it were a god. Now the focus here is either that a person has a focus on the thing to the point of being fixated on it, or the writer of Proverbs could be saying there is a need to be cautious in those times when wine seems the most abundant. In either case, there is a caution. We could interpret this as saying, hey, you don't need to fixate on something to the point that it becomes an obsession for you. Or this could be saying, this verse 31, this word of caution could be saying, there are going to be times in this life when you are surrounded, perhaps parties, by opportunities for the frequent use of wine. Be on guard. You see, created things for us because of our sinful hearts can often become sources of temptation. There's nothing evil in and of itself about wine. All of the evil is in our hearts. But we take, as Romans 1 says, in a variety of contexts, created things and turn them into gods. And the writer of Proverbs is helping us to see that there is a life of one who is addicted to the misuse of created things. And there is a temptation to it. The, the writer doesn't stop there. Thirdly, we see the result of addiction. Look at verse 32. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. And then we're given some images to describe what the life of a drunkard quite frankly, would look like. Notice the result. At the last, it bites like a serpent. The ultimate result of an overuse of a created thing is that it produces damage. The Puritan Matthew Poole says, quote, it hurts the body in many respects, impairs the rigor of the mind, wastes the estate and reputation, wounds the conscience, and without repentance will destroy the soul. End quote. Now perhaps this evening thus far, many of us have been able to take comfort as we hear this passage unfolded. Comfort not so much in the Christ of the gospel, but comfort in the fact that the immediate substance in this text is not a problem for us. But I would submit to you that this passage helps us to see that we have this tendency, not just with wine, but with a whole host of created things. Again, if the definition of addiction biblically could go something like this, the repeated sinful use of created things to the detriment of our souls, minds, ends, or bodies, what are things that might be wine in the cup for us? For some of you, it may be now or in the past, literally cups of wine. For others of us, the lessons need to carry out, but we just need to replace it with a different created thing. Let me give you some examples. Alcohol, of course, can be a substance that God created that we can turn and misuse. Medication for pain can be the same. Devices that we use 
You know, 20 years ago, it strikes me that if I were standing in a pulpit preaching a sermon on addiction, it would be foreign to me to use the word devices. But today, what do we see? We see created things by men and women turned into that which literally run our lives. Then there are other things that in and of themselves not only destroy us and cause pain to ourselves and others, but are sinful even in their first use. We prayed just this morning about one of them, pornography. But in a sense, brothers and sisters, pornography is the same thing. It is the repeated sinful use of a created thing to the detriment of our souls, minds, and or bodies. Relationships can be this. You know, it strikes me that without being stereotypical, that sometimes there are certain temptations that men can wrestle with and women can wrestle with. I'm not a woman. But my wife and I had a conversation knowing that this was the topic that we would be looking at this evening. And sometimes there may be certain things that women can have a tendency to wrestle with, not that men would never wrestle with them. But what are some created things that we repeatedly use to the detriment in sinful ways of our souls, minds, and bodies? Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's something known as codependence. Romance, stories, novels, fantasies. You see, brothers and sisters, our comfort in reading this text ought not to be simply, wine's not my problem. Our comfort ought to be, it's not wine, it has been this, but Christ has washed me with his blood. That ought to be our comfort. When you, for instance, attach yourself to one particular person, looking to them relationally, to be your comfort in a sinful, repeated way. And notice those words are intentional. We are to attach ourselves to our spouses. We are to have close relationships in the body of Christ. We are to have close, daily, repeated relationships with our children. But when those relationships turn into something that is sinful in a repeated way to the detriment of our soul's mind and body, even other people can be a source of wine in the cup for us. In their own ways, each of these, quote, addictions can lead to our hearts being led away from God and perhaps even, in some cases, into perversity. They increase dependence upon themselves. They reduce self-control. They increase shame and guilt such that we no longer reach out for or benefit as much from the ordinary means of grace. Think about the individual who is living his or her life for the bottle, for the computer screen, for the images of nudity that he or she finds there. Six days, catechized according to that created thing, coming to church on the Lord's Day, unprepared for pricked in conscience, sort of, but nowhere near ready to receive words of comfort. The wine in the cup has driven their lives such that it's not only the problem of that particular addiction, it cuts them off from the glorious reminders of covenant grace which God lavishes upon us in Christ. 
You see, there is a picture of the life of an addict in verse 29. There's the reminder of the temptation to addiction, but there's also the result. The result is that created things, when we worship them as gods, all of the time in one way or another, end up being that which is like a serpent. Sinful use bites us. And we begin to see what we see laid out for us in verses 33 and 34. Look there, your eyes will see strange things. Now again, in the immediate context, this isn't hard for us to envision. Have you ever seen a person who is intoxicated? They are not in their right mind. Your heart will utter perverse things. Again, have you ever seen someone who is deeply intoxicated? Verse 34, yes, you will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea. Or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? Notice the various pictures of lacking self-control here. In verse 34, it's maritime images, the images of boats and sailors to demonstrate physical problems. Dizziness, for instance. Verse 35, what do we see? Eventually, a numbness develops where a person no longer recognizes problems. Imagine this, and you've seen it perhaps in those that you love. They are so focused on the created thing that they literally don't know that they're destroying themselves. And when you confront them about it, their response is, when shall I wake up that I may seek another drink? The result of the sinful use of a created thing to the detriment of our souls, minds, or bodies. Well, fourthly, we see in verse 35, the final phrase, the idolatry in addiction. The idolatry. In verse 30, we've already seen that the person has set his or her heart on the substance. Verse 30 says, they linger long. This has become a pastime for them. Perhaps they're going to it for comfort. Perhaps they're going to it for support. But it's become an idol. I-D-O-L. Look at the last phrase. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? Compare that with the psalmist who longs to wake with thoughts of God on his mind. There's a picture of idolatry. It's almost as if the person is saying, I love this thing. I will use it until I pass out. Literally or figuratively. And when I wake up, I'll look for the next drink. But idolatry is all throughout the pages of Scripture. We often think of idolatry as those people in the Old Testament building statues or those people perhaps in the Amazon building statues. Certainly we don't have idolatry. And of course it's John Calvin among others who helps us to see that our hearts are idol factories. You ever thought about this in the New Testament? The very end of John's first letter, 1 John 5.21, My little children, this is how he ends the letter, My little children... Keep yourself from idols. Even if there is a biological 
challenge and hurdles to overcome. We don't want to let the world's definition of addiction is simply a disease rob us of the spiritual benefit of understanding that it may very well be a disease in our bodies, but it is also idolatry in our souls. Well, what hope is there? Because we could rest here at the very end and say it's a bleak picture, but I said I wanted to encourage us with two things tonight. Firstly, considering one of our sins, our addictions. But secondly, reminding us that Jesus died for addicts. For this, let's see what Paul says when he writes about wine in the book of Ephesians. Turn with me to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 and following. There we read these words. This is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you're new to the things of the Bible, Proverbs was written long before Jesus came. Ephesians was written a couple of decades after Jesus died on the cross for sinners, was raised, and ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. So a lot of time has passed. Notice what Paul writes to a bunch of Christians. Ephesians 5.17, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine. He doesn't say don't use wine. He says don't be drunk with it. Don't be controlled by it. In which is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things. To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Notice Paul is concerned here with wisdom as well. Verse 17, do not be unwise. Wisdom is his theme. He says, secondly, related to wisdom, understand the will of the Lord. What is the beginning of wisdom, boys and girls? The fear of the Lord. And then he says, do not be drunk but be filled. Let's fill in the blanks. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Interestingly enough, some commentators think that Paul has in view not only drunkenness here, but the practices of some pagan worship in his day where the god of wine, Dionysus, was worshipped through drunken debauchery. And he's writing to former pagan Gentiles. Hey, your life is to look different now that you're in Christ. No longer worship the God, little g, of wine. And be drunk and do all manner of things in your lack of self-control. But worship the true and living God. Be filled with the true Spirit, capital S. What does it look like? If I said to you, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You're filled with the Word of God and you long to speak it and sing it with the people of God. Have you ever wondered how singing psalms and hymns and how Christian fellowship and how The giving of thanks is the opposite of drunkenness. 
Well, it's about the heart. So a question for us to consider tonight then is, what is driving my heart? Is it God? Is it His praise? Is it speaking of Him to others? Or is it one of the many created things? You see, if Romans 1 says that our chief problem is that we have forsaken the true and living God and begun to worship created things, we as Christians need to be regularly reminded that we have been freed from such a pattern of life. We no longer bow at the altar of created things. We use them in a godly way to the glory of the true Creator. But our hearts still wrestle with sin. And so it is wise to consider where our hearts rest. A couple of diagnostic questions and then some points of application and we're finished. Do I find myself thinking about something that is created to the point of excess? My phone, my video games, my particular relationship with this person or that person, alcohol itself, pain medicine... Do I find myself thinking about that thing to the point of excess? Secondly, do I plan my life around using something or doing something to the detriment of my other responsibilities? Notice again the wisdom of Proverbs 23. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? It's the one who is repeatedly sinfully using created things to the detriment of his or her soul, mind, or body. Thirdly, is my heart fixed on a particular thing more than it is fixed on Christ? Now that's a set of diagnostic questions, and you may say, yes. If I'm honest, preacher, you've asked me, and I can think this, and not have anyone else around me hear what I'm thinking. Yes, I do find myself addicted to something. Yes, I do plan my life around using something or doing something to the detriment of my other responsibilities. In fact, my life is suffering because of it. Yes, regularly I find my heart fixed on a particular thing above Christ. What does that mean? It means you're a sinner. And you desperately need a Savior. And you have such a one in Christ. So as we ask ourselves these questions from Proverbs 23, how do we apply it to our lives? Well, just three points of application. Addiction is ultimately also a spiritual issue. Why do I say also? Because I am very much aware, many of you know my particular background and counseling through the years, I am very aware that there are those who use substances that are very difficult physiologically to stop using. We have to be careful not stopping at the body because we are body and soul. So there may very well be physiological influences for which we need even medical assistance. 
But let us not forget that what lies at the heart of our repeated sinful use of created things is a sinful heart. Our world will want to make it all biological. And they think they are freeing people when they do that. We don't need to deny that addiction has biological impacts. But we rob people of the ultimate cure of the glorious gospel of Christ if we don't also say, with the writer of Proverbs, your problem is that you wake up every day seeking a false God. Addiction is ultimately also a spiritual issue. Secondly, a greater cup must rule our hearts. I say that because that is what the Proverbs writer uses to describe the enticing nature of the created thing known as alcohol. He says, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it's enticing. That's the cup that the addict can be enticed by, and by implication, other things that we idolize. But it's Christ that we must long for. The greater cup must rule our hearts. Thirdly and finally, as we put Proverbs 23 and Ephesians 5 together, we see that worship, fellowship, and thanksgiving are the practical way out of addiction. And let me linger here for just a moment. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul is writing to Christians. He says at the beginning of Ephesians that God is to be praised because this group of Christians has been predestined. In chapter 2, he says of them, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. He says we're, we're spiritually dead. But Ephesians 2.4, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. He then thanks God in chapter 3 for the great love with which He's shown believers. It's not until chapter 5 that He gives the command. You see, worship and fellowship and thanksgiving in the place of the sinful repeated use of created things is assumed only when we understand that it's in Christ alone that our hope is found. So in Ephesians 5.19, he says that we are to be speaking to one another. That's fellowship. Ephesians 5.19b, we're singing, making melody in our hearts. Psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. And then, turn there once more with me in Ephesians 5.20. What does he say? What does he say? Don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, don't, and I think there's something to this, worship the God of wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Fellowshipping, praising, and verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving to God. Why would I want to numb my reality by idolatry to the things of this world 
when it would keep me from basking in the glory of Christ with clear eyes. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Brothers and sisters, the sheer fact that Paul had to tell the Ephesian believers not to be drunk, but to be filled with the Spirit, is a reminder for us that Christ hasn't simply saved us from past addictions pre-Christ. He saved us from our current addictions. At the self-same time, a Christian can be wrestling with the sinful, repeated use of a created thing to the detriment of their soul, mind, or body, and be considered perfectly righteous in the courtroom of God. At the same time, do you not believe the gospel? At the same time, a person can be in the midst of, in the throes of, the misuse, sinfully, repeatedly, detrimental use to a substance. They can be a drunkard. They can have walked a a clean life, and then all of a sudden they find themselves sinfully staring at the computer screen again. And if they are in Christ, then they are righteous in the sight of God. This is, as some have said, the scandal of the gospel. It makes no sense to us. Our accounting here on this earth is not like that. You don't follow me. You don't do what I want you to do. I'm going to mark that down in my ledger. But God has marked down every last bit of your sins, to include addictive sins, and handed it to Christ who nailed it to the cross. So the glorious good news of the gospel is that Christ's work is not simply for your past. It's for your present. And the greatest possible realization that you could have is that you are not satisfied with your addiction. You may say, but preacher, I keep going to it, but I don't like it. Why don't you like it? Is it because your life is full of woe? Well, yeah, I don't like that either. I don't like that I lost this job or that job because of my addiction. But really, I don't like it because it's not right. That realization is a precious realization. Because it is likely very much evidence that the Spirit of God has been working in your soul all along. So what ought you to do? Well, practically, Paul says, worship, fellowship with God's people, give thanks always, cultivate a lifestyle of thanksgiving, yes. But the Christ who received you in your first few moments of conversion is the Christ who stands ready even now to hear from you in the midst of your groanings that you feel like you are enslaved to the cup. You feel like your life is full of woe, that it is being bitten by the serpent of a created thing that you have made into a God. The last thing that you need to do is go it alone and try to clean yourself up. What you need to do is cry out to the Savior, living God, you know this already, but I bring to you in repentance and confession 
I have loved something that you have created for the last week, the last month, the last year, more than I've loved you. And if you don't free me from that slavery, I will not be freed. But the cross of Christ has said that I've been freed from sin. So living God, help me. And then begin to heed the words of Ephesians. Consider what it looks like from Paul's pen to be filled with the Spirit instead of being drunk with wine. And consider deeply the soul-level realities of your particular cup of wine. I would say this to us, brothers and sisters. This text is chiefly and circumstantially about the intoxicant known as wine. But if we read it closely and simply are able to substitute other created things, we might very well see ourselves also in Proverbs 23. But the living God who wrote these words for our edification doesn't leave us longing to wake up that we may seek another drink, but longing to wake up to see the glorious Savior. Let's pray. Living God, help us. Help us to rightly consider our use of created things and to order that rightly by Your Spirit. To use created things in a way that You have given for Your glory as one of Your good gifts. And not to look to these created things, whatever they may be, to be our comfort above You. To be our God. Help us, O Lord, we pray. And may we see in Paul's pen to the Ephesians the glorious truth that even Christians need to be told don't get drunk. Which is a balm to our souls when we remember our precious Savior that you have died for all of the addictions of your people. So change our hearts because of what you've done from one degree of glory to another. In Jesus' name, amen.